0: and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi, And I'm your co-host, Lulu. So before we get started, is there anything that you've been into or up to lately since we last recorded? Well, honestly, I've mostly just been being flattened by my workload, which has been pretty intense this semester so far. But we are recording this the day after Halloween, and I had a very fun Halloween weekend. I wore three separate costumes. I ate too much candy. I rewatched the cinematic masterpiece, The Addams Family, 1991. It's a pretty good time overall. Like I said, I'm just so, so busy with coursework and occasionally having a social life and extracurriculars. I've not been like reading much lately, but I did recently read the short story A Dead Gin in Cairo by P. Jelly Clark, which was really fun. It's a really cool setting, which is like 19th century steampunk magical Cairo about a woman investigating supernatural happenings. Very fun world. There's also full-length books set in that world. I'm very excited to go read them, but I enjoyed that quite a lot. Yeah, I love A Dead jinn in Cairo. It has such interesting and unique world building. Like you, I've also been super busy with classes and like having a social life and also Halloween, but I did read two spooky books because it felt appropriate to be reading spooky books during Halloween season. And the first was The Devil Make Three by Tori Bavolino, which was a really cool kind of dark academia horror novel about a pair of boarding school students who accidentally summoned a demon. And it was really good. It was like set in a spooky library and there was demons and people doing ill-advised magical bargains. And it was just really good and very much up my alley. I feel like since I'm taking a class on demonic bargains in literature, I'm now legally obliged to go read that book and I'm not mad about it. It sounds great. It was great. I also read Our Last Echoes by Kate Alice Marshall, which was another horror novel this time about a teenager who is trying to find out what happened to her mother who disappeared mysteriously in Alaska while doing research. And it had like this really fun mixture of regular narration and like found footage and multimedia. And that was really cool and unique. I'm not a huge horror person, but I enjoyed both of those books a lot. I also read A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers, which is just like a very soothing solar punk novella about a tea monk and a robot going on a road trip through a forest. And it was just very nice and peaceful, and I love Becky Chambers sci fi books very much. I'm so jealous that you managed to carve out time to read two spooky books because I was just too busy during October to read anything that was like seasonal. So I think we just going to continue pretending it's spooky season and reading creepy books that like fit the fall vibe. Sadly, because it is no longer October, we are not here to talk about spooky things. We are instead here to talk about baked goods, or more specifically, we are here to talk about fantasy books where the main characters are bakers, which is a somewhat niche subgenre we have created for this episode. But a very delicious one, I have to say. So we're going to be talking about *A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking* by T. Kingfisher and Sunshine by Robin McKinley, which are pretty different books, but they both happen to coincidentally star protagonists who are bakers. So we thought it might be kind of fun to pair them together and discuss the fantasy elements and also how the main character's occupation influence, like their worldview and the world building and the fantasy elements because they both do that in pretty fun ways. A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking by T. Kingfisher is a fantasy novel following 14-year-old Mona, a wizard whose talents lie with baking and dough. Because her powers are a lot more minor than other wizards who can do things like summon rain or create fire. She lives a pretty peaceful life working in her aunt Tabitha's bakery in the city of Riverbraid, using her match to keep pastries from burning and making the dough rise properly. Also, and this will become important later, her familiar is a living sourdough starter named Bob. I love Bob. He's a very fun idea for a familiar. He also made me really hungry for sourdough bread. A familiar, if you aren't really... (laughs) Haha, <laughs> familiar <laughs> with fantasy terms <laughs> is sort of like a magical animal companion or something that a wizard might draw power from. Anyway, so Mona lives a pretty peaceful existence as a baker, but unfortunately this is ruined one day. When opening the shop, she finds the dead body of an unfamiliar girl in a bakery, plunging her into a world of murder, conspiracy, an attempted coup, and eventually a siege. I found that Wizards Guide to Defense of Baking really fun. It reminded me a lot of Terry Pratchett and Diana Wynne-Jones in that something about the world and the magic feels both very whimsical and practical. Agreed. I love T. Kingfisher's books. I've read a lot of them, both her fairy tale retellings and her horror novels, and they're all really great and really funny. And they have this very grounded way of talking about magic, which just kind of feels like a part of the world, which is no exception in A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking because Mona does magic, but she also bakes and the two feel like very connected and very part of her life. I also enjoyed that T. Kingfisher comes up with a lot of really clever ways for Mona to use her bread magic in this book, because at the start of it, she thinks of herself as someone who has magic, but it's not very useful magic in terms of doing anything beyond giving people like a nice tasty blueberry muffin. But because Mona eventually ends up on the run and involved in conspiracies and coups and averting murders, she has to come up with these really clever ways to use her bread magic. So like there's a bit where she escapes from her pursuers by magicing bread slices and floating away on the river. And then later, at one point, she makes an army of bread people. So it's just it takes such a kind of fun concept that could be very whimsical and basically like goes, how, how much can we push this idea of a bread wizard? Like, what could you really do if you had magic that worked with dough? And I really enjoyed reading about that because it's so fun when fantasy writers come up with a really specific type of magic and really explore every possible avenue you could take it down. Yeah, I loved this aspect of Mona's magic. It was honestly why I picked up the book in the first place because I've read a lot of books with characters who can control fire or water or air, but I've never read a book about a bread wizard. It felt like T. Englisher had actually sat down and thought really hard about all the things that you could do with bread magic besides just making really good bread. And it actually comes up in the story a lot. Like Mona has all these very inventive ideas for how she can use her bread magic to do stuff and help people. And also how she can just use it to improve her bread as well. Mona also has this kind of interesting character arc where she thinks of herself as someone who's not particularly powerful, or useful, and is just kind of confined to the bakery. But then part of her character arc is kind of realizing it's not what kind of magic you have or how powerful that is, but what kind of things you can learn to do with it. And that essentially the limit is not what type of magic you have, but the imagination you have to apply with it, which I thought was really fun. And I just really enjoyed all the inventive ways that the magic got used in this book. Yeah, this is kind of a larger theme within the book since all the people in this world generally have the ability to do one really specific thing and they need to be clever in order to use it in a lot of different ways. And there are some people whose powers are more useful, like someone who can summon storms. And then there are people like Mona, whose powers seem kind of relatively useless and only good for making good food. But like everyone in this world kind of has to think about a good way to apply their power and how to be inventive about it. And I really liked that because... It can be fun to read books with protagonists who are like super powerful and have the chosen one and they can do everything because it can be fun to read about characters doing all kinds of magic, but I also really like it when someone has one specific thing they're good at, and they have to be really inventive and clever about ways to use it in different situations, which is definitely what happened in this book because Mona like comes up with all these fun ideas like making bread soldiers or making bread like float across a river and they're not things that you'd commonly think you could do with bread, but she comes up with them anyway. I'd also say, this book got surprisingly dark, (laughs) considering Bread Wizard is, you know, a pretty whimsical idea and the main character is pretty young. Because it turns out that the dead girl Mona found in her aunt's bakery was the victim of this serial killer who targets magical users called the Spring Green Man, who's killing wizards in the city as part of this larger conspiracy theory to kill and register all magic users to kind of enable a coup against the ruling duchess. So there's a lot of murder and a lot of attempted murder in this book, despite the fact that the cover makes it look pretty whimsical and the main character is definitely on the younger side. Yeah, it does get pretty dark for a book with a 14-year-old protagonist, but actually so do a lot of T. Kingfisher's books, actually really, because I feel like her books generally tend to be really funny, but then they also have some kind of social commentary going on them. And in this case, a large theme in A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking is kind of the idea of like when the adults fail and the chosen one teenager has to step up to save the day that's actually not a good thing because the adults who are in power should have prevented things from getting bad in the first place. Yeah I think what I like about books I've read by T. Kingfisher is that they are often really whimsical and fun but there's always this very genuine emotional heart to them sometimes like they're about realizing that people won't love you back and you have to continue to like work on yourself and love yourself instead of waiting around for someone who's not going to care about you and sometimes they are about how adults will fail you and lead to a magical serial killer getting loose in the city yeah because in this book even after the serial killer who's called the spring green man is locked away and the lead inquisitor who is helming the coup is banished from the city he ends up coming back with an army of mercenaries to lay siege to riverbraid and it gets Kind of dark because the first half is like a murder mystery, but there's only really one character death that's on page, and then the second half is like a seed and an attempt to overthrow the government, and Mona being so- thrown into a situation that's like way over her head for a 14 year old baker. So it definitely doesn't stay particularly lighthearted. Not that it starts that way either. Yeah, I mean, I was reading this, and you get to the point where they're like, "Ah, oh, yes, we have found the serial killer." we have stopped the coup things don't look like they're going to be great and I was like cool but we still have like a hundred pages left of this book to go like that's that's not really how it's gonna all end is it and then T. Kingfisher really ratchets this book up from just like a murder mystery to also your entire city is under siege by some evil mercenaries and all the cool wizards got sent off another mission so there's just this one girl who has bread magic left to defend the entire city uh no pressure or anything (laughs) yeah pretty much the third act of this book was very intense. Also, I read it in one sitting, like the first two thirds of this book I enjoyed. And I was finding it rather hard to read books at this time because sometimes I'm just like tired. I go read superhero comics instead of full length books. And I was in the middle of one of those moods. And I read the first two thirds of it. And I was like, oh, this is like delightful and fun. And then I read the final third. And I was like, wow, I am legitimately stressed because the tension gets really like turned all the way up and you're quite stressed because Mona is a 14 year old and you're very aware that she's a 14 year old and there are some whimsical elements to this book but also there are very real stakes and characters do die and I find the categorization of this book interesting because the tone of it is quite funny at points and the main character is quite young but I think I wouldn't also necessarily hand it to someone who's like a reader of middle grade fiction or is 14 just because it does involve like people dying and like the threat of your whole world being destroyed but it also didn't feel necessarily clunkily put together or like the darkness and like the funny magic and practical themes didn't weave together, which really impressed me. I love T. Kingfisher's books because they managed to weave together these different tones. And I think A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking is a really good example of that. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I think this was definitely an example of a book that has a young protagonist, but also manages to deal with like some dark scenarios pretty well and I really liked that while Mona is dealing with like this serial killer and an attempted coup and a siege she also gets to be really mad that she has to step up and save the day because none of the adults could stop things before they went too far because I think a lot of times in young adult fiction the teenage protagonist like steps up to save the day without complaining and Mona gets to be mad and she's like you guys were all in charge of the government why didn't you stop anything before it got this bad why didn't you stop the spring green man or like the people who are trying to register all the magic shooters users or killing them if they refuse to and I like that because I think that most young adult books kind of just expect you to accept the fact that young adult protagonists can save the day that's just like a part of the genre but in this case it kind of did acknowledge like no yeah the adults should have done something and they didn't and now things are really bad yeah I really like that because I think it's a good way to write a story that gets pretty dark but also stars a young protagonist so Mona gets to be a hero but also she gets these moments of reflecting on the fact that she has to be a hero and that's not a good thing, because it means that all the adults who were supposed to stop things before they got so bad have failed at their job. Like, if the duchess of your city and the army of your city and the wizards in charge of your city have all failed to the point where a 14-year-old girl who just wants to go bake cookies is the one who's supposed to be stopping a siege, like, your chain of command is immensely screwed up and this is not how things should be going. And I found that really interesting to read, because when you are 14 and you read books about 14-year-olds saving the world, you're like, this is reasonable, and this is what the book is about. And the fact that The Chosen One is a teenager is totally normal. And like that's supposed to be not messed up. But then like when you might read them as an adult, you're like, oh my god, all these adults are failing these children. Which I think is why it was interesting to read this as an adult, even though the protagonist is young, because it's a book that acknowledges that it is kind of messed up when the kids have to save the day in a fantasy book. Also, I feel like in our current situation, I'm mad that the people in charge didn't stop things that are happening before they got worse than they have to be is a pretty relatable sentiment right now. Like I read a wizard's guide to offensive baking, like in the thick of the pandemic when I was very angry at the government. So all of Mona's feelings about like the fact that she's really mad that people who had power to make things better aren't making things better was pretty relatable. Oh yeah. Like that was just a very relatable sentiment. And the author's note actually <laughs> acknowledges that because T. Kingfisher has a little author's note in the back of this book that discusses how she wrote the book and then got shopped around to publishers and kind of sat in her desk drawer for a really long time because it's really hard to categorize because of the age. Like it stars young protagonists, but it's also kind of a dark book. And it happened to release at a time when people are all really mad at the government for failing and also people are like baking sourdough while they're in quarantine, which means that a book about being mad about corruption of power and being let down by people who are supposed to protect you and also baking a lot of sourdough is, like, suddenly surprisingly relevant, even though she wrote the book a really long time ago, which I thought was really interesting. Tea Kingfisher was a prophet, actually. Okay, well, I would like her to stop being prophetic, if that's the kind of thing she could predict. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she could write a nice prophetic book where they just bake cookies and have a good time. Anyway, so Mona ends up up with Spindle, who is the 10-year-old brother of the murdered girl she found in the bakery. And I think both of them realistically read like kids who are forced into really terrible situations and have to save the day like obviously I am not 10 or 14 so I can't really accurately gouge whether like they read realistically but I think there is an element to their characters where they might be kind of brave and even foolhardy but also you get to see that they're kids and they get to be really upset and be angry that the adults aren't saving the day and I just thought that was like an interesting perspective to read because this does star a young protagonist but it's actually published under T. King Fisher's like adult pen name so it's kind of marketed adults because it's such a dark book and I think if I had read this book and there wasn't that acknowledgement of like it is messed up for these children to have to save the day when there are adults who should be competent it wouldn't have felt as nuanced or as interesting it's not like a grim dark book it's not like oh the world is terrible and we're all gonna die and there's no joy in the world and everyone is self-centered evil like it's still a book about how you have something to contribute to the world and can save the day, even if you don't think you're powerful and how community is important and how like good can win in the end. But it's also something about how it can be really hard to have to stand up and do the right thing when things have gotten really terrible and they shouldn't have gotten that way in the first place. So I just felt like it was a really fun book, but it was also a really nuanced book. Yeah. I picked it up. And I was like, haha, baking wizard, sourdough starter familiar. This will be fun. And then it actually got kind of heavy. Like one A plot point that I was not expecting, because it isn't really described in the description of the book at all, or any of the reviews, is the idea of this magical register of people, which is that like there are certain people in the government of Riverbraid who distrust magic users like Mona and they want to either register them or kill them if they think they're too dangerous to be kept alive it's a little bit similar to like the mutant registry from x-men comics and it is kind of used like as a way to explore the fact that there are people in Mona's community who won't buy her muffins because she's a magic user and they distrust her because of that and kind of the idea that like Mona and these other people have an ability and they can use it for good or bad but it's just something they do and some people distrust them to the point of wanting to kill them because of that power which was not a theme I was expecting to find in the book but was a very interesting plot point because you're like Mona's a bread wizard what could she possibly do that's dangerous but then you can also see that there are like these other people who have more dangerous abilities. And so some people in the government of Riverbraid have decided to like treat all magic users like they're potentially very dangerous and like they either need to be like rounded up and registered or killed, which is kind of like the reason that the serial killer plot line happens. They're like killing people who refuse to be registered. I wasn't gonna bring up the X-Men parallel until you did, That that did definitely remind me of X-Men. And that's not just because my brain has been rotted by reading a lot of X-Men comics this year. I genuinely do think there is a parallel. I think one thing that personally would have made this book a little stronger is there is sort of that storyline in which Mona's like, there are people who are different and sometimes they are treated badly because they're different. And it reassures me to know when there are people in power who will not like treat me badly because I'm different. I wouldn't have minded if like the cast of this book had been a little bit more diverse. It's just sort of set in a generic European fantasy world. So most of the characters seem to be white and like, there's no particular like romance in the book, but like all the relationships with Zero heterosexual. And I just personally think it would have been nice if like this storyline about how sometimes people hate you for being different, but being different can also be what makes you powerful would have like perhaps paralleled some like real life diverse identities. But that's just my general take on X-Men comics as well that I'm applying to this book. No, I think that's a valid take. You're right. The book is not super heavy on descriptions, but it does seem to be just, like, general European world with white people. So, like, it's a metaphor, but it also, like, is something that happens in real life. So maybe the metaphor would have been stronger if there'd been more diversity. But still, I thought it was an interesting plot point because I feel like the fact that Mona has bread magic, which is just, like, used to make good bread and feed people and make them happy, is a good way of showing, like, it was totally ridiculous and wrong and horrible for government to want to register and control all these people because all Mona does is make really good bread. Oh yeah I mean the point is that these people are not inherently dangerous because they have powers even if they can use them in dangerous ways. They and they shouldn't be like rattled up or killed by a serial killer. I think the second half of this book when Riverbraid is under siege like I said it really grabbed me and I honestly read most of it in one sitting. I think one thing that really stuck out to me was the sacrifice of the character named Nell because Technically, Mona is the only like powerful wizard who's willing to help save the city left in Riverbrae when it's under siege. But there's also this kind of bone witch named Nell who can animate dead horses. And it mostly exists this like sort of quirky character in the background for the first half of the book. Where people are like, oh yeah, that's Nell. She's kind of weird. Like she can resurrect only dead horses and that's about it, which is particularly useful. So she just kind of walks around with her like pet skeleton horse in the background. But there's like this really good moment that's honestly kind of heart-wrenching when Nell uses all of her power and kind of sacrifices herself to raise all the dead horses in the vicinity of her braid and set them on the enemy army. And I just thought that was a good moment and also kind of like a good Chekhov's gun because you meet Nell and she's like sort of a weird quirky character who like doesn't really know what's going on and like just hangs out with her pet horse in the background. But then somehow this character that is just kind of quirky ends up like having this really strong emotional resonance, which I feel like is true of a lot of T. Kingfisher books. Like you'll be like, oh my gosh, this is so funny and quirky. I'm loving this magic and how funny it is. And you'd be like, wow, actually my heartstrings are being yanked on. Yeah, no, I agree. That was definitely one part of the book that made me unexpectedly emotional. I thought that character was also a little bit of a commentary on PTSD, because one thing that we do know about the world of Riverbraid is that when people have powerful enough magic, like bringing horses back from the dead, the government kind of swoops in and like picks them up and brings them to the army and uses them. And everyone who's met Nell prior to her service in the army was like, yeah, she was kind of a different person back then, and now she's just like this weird horsewoman. And they kind of get the sense that, like, spending all her time in the army resurrecting dead horses was like very traumatic from her because now she's just like this strange horsewoman who wanders around the streets. And so, like, when you get to the part of the book where she sacrifices her life to like raise this army of dead horses and destroy like the enemy mercenaries it's actually very emotional because you know like enough about the character to know like she's been through some bad war stuff before but she wants to protect her friends and her home and like tea is really masterful at writing things that are really funny but they also kind of pack an emotional punch when you least expect them exactly also it was just kind of a badass moment like sometimes you just want to read about people harnessing cool magic to like smite the enemy and your brain goes "wee" and you're like wow this is really cool Like, at heart, I am a fantasy fan because I like cool magic. (laughs) Another cool moment is when Mona raises some, like, bread monsters and helps use them to defend the city. And it's very cool imagery because she builds these, like, 10-foot-tall bread monsters baked in giant ovens, and they're, like, smashing through the army, and you're like, oh, wow, bread magic is powerful, actually. This is pretty cool. It's like the big fight scenes in Lord of the Rings, but instead of like elephants and orcs, you have the content of someone's bakery. Mm -hmm. Oh, also another thing that I really liked in this book was the gingerbread men that she creates because Mona has this like ability to bring gingerbread men to life. And she usually uses it in the bakery at the start of the book to just like make them dance and like advertise her baking to people. But she has one that she imbued with like a little bit too much magic and it just kind of follows her around being like intelligent and sitting on her shoulder. And then she makes this army of evil gingerbread men during the climax and like fills them with like rat poison, like nail filings and stuff and sends them off to like harass the other army. And I just love that. Like it was just such a fun concept. I went and saw the Nutcracker a bunch when I was a kid. So I don't know, the idea of like personified desserts is fun to me. And also the idea of evil gingerbread men was just deeply fun because... I don't know, T. King Fisher just really looked at like baking and was like, what are all the possible avenues I can use for this? Like Mona tries to make a bird out of bread that can fly, except like then it explodes because bread is not meant to fly. But it was just very fun the way that Mona starts really plumbing the depths of her magic because at the start of the book, she's just like, well, I can make the bread rise really well. I can like make the icing look nice. But then by the end of the book, she's exploring like sympathetic magic and like giant monsters made out of bread and creating like sentient creatures. And it was just very fun to watch her level up in her bread magic over the course of the book. Yeah, it's so imaginative. I particularly love the gingerbread men, especially the evil ones, because they get up to, like, so much chaos, but just the embodiment of I'm going to cause problems on purpose, and it's really fun to read about. I also liked it when Mona kind of pushes up against the limitations of her magic. Like you mentioned, at one point she tries to build a bird to, like, fly around and deliver messages to people, but bread isn't made to fly, so it just kind of, like, explodes because she can't make it fly. And that was fun as well, because you're like, are there no limits to Mona's bread power? But actually there are some elements to bread power because it's bread and it can't do everything bob was also a fun but slightly horrifying addition to this book because mona is someone who has good control over her magic at the start of the book but when she was younger and learning how to use her magic on bread she accidentally imbued this sourdough starter with like a lot of slightly malicious energy so at the start of the book they just had this giant bucket of sourdough starter that is maybe carnivorous living in the basement of her aunt's house and bob becomes important at like the climax when they're fighting off of the evil army because they start treating bob like boiling oil and like pouring him onto the army and he like starts eating people oh yeah bob has taken lives he's a murderer but he also makes really good bread because all the sourdough bread in Mona's bakery is made out of bob but he's also like a carnivorous sourdough starter it's great not like regularly carnivorous, but there's one mention that one time she and her aunt got trapped somewhere else because of some snow for a couple of days. And they came back and they were like, oh, man, like our sourdough starter is all going to be like dead and gone. And he had like eaten some rats. And they were like, oh, this is a little worrying, but we're not going to think too much about it. And But just the fact that the character is called Bob, but then is also mildly terrifying and has some perhaps implications we don't think too much about. <laughs> it was just like very tea Kingfisher to me. Yes, I also just love the imagery of them putting Bob in, like, buckets and then dumping them down off the battlements onto the enemy soldiers. And they're like, what's this, bread? And the bread starts trying to eat them. It was really funny. It was great. Yeah, I just feel like both the magic and the character insight and, like, kind of the commentary about abuse of power and angry at governmental failings, worked together really good in this because it's not just that the magic is fun and that it's kind of cool to see Mona push limits for bread magic, but also that the storyline and like the emotional core of this feels very strong. Just the fact that Mona has like this moment after she's been awarded a heroic medal at the end of the book where she's like, you know, actually it kind of sucks to be a hero because it means that bad things had to happen in order for you to save the day just felt like a very nuanced but not cynical thing to put in a book that I really liked. I also liked that because I feel like a lot of times in fantasy books, it's like, we fought a battle and that was bad, but we're heroes and that's cool. And then I was more like, I'd rather not be a hero because I just wish this whole thing never happened, which was very fair of her. It's like how people keep saying <laughs> recently, I don't want to live in unprecedented times. I want to live a really boring existence. Relatable. Yeah. I also- it- I also, along with the baking magic, just really liked the fact that T. Kingfisher makes it clear that Mona is a baker throughout the whole book. She just doesn't have the power. It's also something she cares about a lot. Like, she is always thinking about baking throughout the book, even during terrible moments when you should not be thinking about baking. Like, for example, when she's baking the bread monster, she keeps thinking, like, oh no, the bread I'm making is very bad. It won't be cooked in the middle. This is terrible. And then has to remind herself, like, no, no, I'm making a bread monster. It's fine. It doesn't taste good. No one's supposed to eat it. Or like there's a part where they find the dead body in the bakery and her aunt is like Mona please go put some muffins in the oven the police officers will be hungry when they come here and I want to sell some muffins to them so like everyone in this book is thinking about baking all the time even at inappropriate moments which was kind of funny but also made her realistically read like a baker it felt like it was an important part of the book beyond just what she could do with the magic like Mona does have magic but she also just likes baking beyond that as well I feel like you could tell that the author had done a lot of hands-on research for this book. It's not just very theoretical about what it means to be a baker. It's like, yes, being a baker means getting up ridiculously early so you can put bread in the oven. Yes, it means like that you get really strong arms from eating dough all the time. It means that you think about the quality of your goods and like what different types of things you can sell during different types of the year all the time. And I just feel like it felt very hands-on. I was like, this author definitely learned how to bake bread from scratch to write this book. And I feel like you can tell. Yeah, agreed. It didn't feel like a tacked on part of Mono's personality. Like sometimes I'll read a book and the main character will be given a hobby. And I'm like, well, it doesn't feel like a part of the character because I never think about it. But in this case, baking really did feel like an active and important part of Mona's life, even just aside from the fact that she has magic because she works in the bakery as well. Exactly. I honestly think this book just felt very well-rounded. Like the integration of the baking and the baking magic, but also Mono's emotional development, and the commentary in the book all felt very well put together. And if this book had to sit in T. Kingfisher's desk drawer for a decade before she learned how to market it, I think that didn't do it any harm. I still really enjoyed it. And it made me want you to go continue reading more T. Kingfisher books. Agreed. I feel like T. Kingfisher just has this particular brand of fantasy that makes you laugh really hard, but also think about stuff. And it's really enjoyable. It kind of feels a bit like a successor to Terry Pratchett almost. Yeah, I think it did remind me a lot of Terry Pratchett, especially the political commentary and the way that it's all kind of centered around this one city did seem very Pratchett to me. Overall, it was a very good book because it made me crave sourdough bread and muffins the whole time I was reading this, but I also felt indignant about the failures of the government. So the next book we're going to be talking about is Sunshine by Robin McKinley, which is an adult urban fantasy book about a baker who is reluctantly dragged into a world of vampires and dark magic. And it's about a baker called Sunshine Seddon, who is pretty content with her life as a coffeehouse baker until one evening she is captured by vampires and offered as food to another captive vampire. And instead of certain death, which is what Sunshine has been taught that any encounters with vampires will always lead to, the vampire that she is imprisoned with proves to be a surprising ally, and the two actually end up escaping. Unfortunately, that's not the end of it for Sunshine, since the incident reignites the simmering conflict between humans and the supernatural world, and drags up reminders of her own magical heritage, which she has been steadfastly ignoring since she was a child. And the vampire that Sunshine escapes from, Bo, is also still out to get her, and she's also being confronted by the supernatural hunting organization of the government that wants to recruit her, so unfortunately she can't go back to her normal life as a baker and forget all about it as much as she wants to. Basically, if you want to read a book about someone being very magically stressed and baking a lot of cinnamon buns, this is your book. It's a fun book because it's an urban fantasy novel and it has a lot of the expected trappings like there's the government agency that deals with like supernatural entities and there's like some vampires and there's some werewolves and there's some demons, but the main character is also a very steady, like no-nonsense, practical person who just wants to bake cinnamon rolls for a living and is really not interested in like the magical heritage that she inherited from her powerful magician father. Yeah, because the problem is that Sunshine is mostly known as someone who works at a coffee house and bakes really great cinnamon rolls, except in reality, her biological father was a magician from a powerful family that she hasn't been in contact for 15 years. And when she's captured by the vampires and escapes, she uses her magic for the first time in a really long time and reignites some connections to that side of her family and all the trouble that comes with it. So even if vampires weren't hunting her, she wouldn't be able to return to her normal life as a baker and just peacefully exist without being meddled in by magical forces. I am rather picky about vampire books. There's only a handful I've read that I actually enjoy, but I think that Sunshine is definitely one of them because it feels kind of fresh and unique because as well as vampires, there's also a lot about Sunshine's daily life as a baker, and she's just like very steadfastly uninterested in being dragged into this world, and she just wants to bake sugary goods for the rest of her life. But she also has magic and magical heritage and a weird mental bond with the vampire. So as much as she wants to ignore this part of her life, it's very much there, and she can't ignore it. Okay, so fun fact about me: you had read this book before and reread it for the podcast episode. I had never read it before, and I did not actually realize it was going to be a vampire book. Until I started reading it, which is kind of ridiculous when you consider the fact that one, the book description on the inside flap is all about vampires, and two, the cover basically screams, this is a vampire book. But because we were reading this for an episode on baked goods and magic, I I sort of had like forgotten about that. So it was a bit of a surprise when I started reading. I was like, oh my God, there's vampires. How did you not realize they were vampires? The vampires are in like the first 10 pages of this book. It just wasn't in like my mental description of the book. I was like, right, okay, so it's urban fantasy. And the main character's name is Sunshine and she bakes stuff. Okay, that's cool. Maybe there will be like some magical baking. And, I, and then I started reading. And I was like, oh, okay, she's captured by vampires. Oh, they vampires want to eat her. Oh, Oh, yes. Okay, this is a vampire book. It is a vampire book. There's other things going on it, but it is pretty much a vampire book. I really liked Robin McKinley's take on vampires because in this world, they're very powerful, shadowy creatures who run criminal empires, and they have ancient feuds between each other, and they're basically the most terrifying supernatural threat that humans face. And the way they're described is not as cool or sexy, but as like horrifying and frightening predators who also happen to be dead. I enjoyed that a lot as well, because the world that Sunshine lives in is one that seems a little bit like ours, but slightly different with a lot more supernatural stuff. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And one of the supernatural elements present in her world is vampires, but they're not described as cool or sexy, like you said. They're just these viscerally terrifying predators that are very inhuman. And the way Bob McKinley describes them is that they are these dead apex predators who feed on people and they're really creepy. And I really like that because this is not like Edward Cullen or like cool gothic vampires. This is, this is a predator who wants to suck your blood and has not been alive for longer than you have been alive. And it was very creepy and well done. And I enjoyed that take on vampires a lot. This book does have one exception to the completely horrifying and evil vampires, which is that the captive vampire Sunshine was supposed to be fed to, whose name is Khan, is sort of on her side because they kind of bond a bit through their experience of being captured by the same people and then escaping, but... He is also pretty clearly still an ancient alien creature who's very far removed from being human, and a lot of the time Sunshine has to remind herself like, Khan is my friend, he's on my side, he's not gonna eat me even though all of my like animal brain instincts think that he's gonna eat me. Okay, technically his name is Constantine, but A, I am incapable of pronouncing Constantine correctly. I say Constantine <laughs> because I don't know, I read too many Hellblazer comics or I just don't know how to pronounce things. Anyway. And he's called Khan for most of the books. We're just going to go with that so I can stop mispronouncing his name. But yes, I did like that even the vampire that is on Sunshine's side is still really creepy. And there are mentions like the fact that he doesn't have a heartbeat or that he's inhumanly cold that I really liked. Like, this is a creepy creature. This is not your sexy undead boyfriend. And I enjoyed that. I thought this was an interesting portrayal of vampires because Sunshine came out in 2003, which was like, I think a little bit before Twilight started making waves with its like sparkly, sexy, tormented vampires. But in this case, the vampires in Sunshine are pretty firmly creepy and inhuman and universally feared and hated by everyone, which is kind of an interesting take because there are so many books about vampires being sexy. And like, I don't mind books about vampires being sexy. I think they're fun. But I did really like this book acknowledged that like vampires are dead people that want to drink your blood. And that's like an inherently terrifying premise. There is also some kind of funny commentary on paranormal books that romanticize vampires because Sunshine mentions how a lot of people in her world will have like this ideal image of a cool romantic vampire when they're younger and then kind of grow out of it and be like, oh, actually no, they're, they're terrifying and creepy. And it's actually illegal in her world to create media that portrays vampires as cool or potential romantic leads and everyone is terrified of them. But there is sort of this funny commentary on sort of the Twilight phenomenon, but it's not really commentary on Twilight because I think this came out either before or just right after Twilight came out. So it's just sort of general commentary on that trope of the romantic leave vampire, but I did enjoy that. So the vampires who captured Sunshine, as we said, were planning on feeding her to Khan and they wanted to poison her. So he would feed on her and then die. But the two instead become allies and they form this unlikely magical bond because it turns out that Sunshine can allow Khan to walk in the sunlight if she like offers him her magic. But he's still like very creepy, but they still have this relationship. And that sort of continues on through the rest of the book. And it's very interesting, like, I don't know, push and pull relationship because they need each other and Khan can help her navigate the supernatural world. But also he represents the fact that there is this really creepy supernatural world that is interested in Sunshine, even if she doesn't want to be a part of it. Yeah, as well as there being vampires, it's also kind of a broader urban fantasy world filled with demons and magicians and angels and various weird creatures. And it feels very fleshed out. Most of it takes place in the city of New Arcadia where Sunshine lives. We don't really get much of a sense of the broader world. They don't go any- on any road trips. We don't really know anything about the government, but it feels like kind of a fleshed out world just by virtue of Sunshine and other characters mentioning things like the voodoo wars or like the government agency that deals with vampires and other supernatural creatures and it's kind of fun because it feels a little bit like our world but not quite because magic is so commonplace but it's not quite commonplace enough that it's taken over everything in the world. There's even categories of different magical creatures. There's vampires and then among humans there's sorcerers like Sunshine's family who can do magic where people who are basically any kind of person that can turn into an animal, like werewolves. I feel like they mentioned were chickens at one point. And then there's part bloods, which are people with demon blood because demons is sort of like a general catch all for any type of supernatural creature. Like, I think they mentioned like jinn and a sukubai and stuff. I thought the world building this was pretty interesting. It's set several years after this near cataclysmic and apparently inaccurately named event called the Voodoo Wars which decimated the human population and has left everyone on edge. So humans are still living in their cities and day-to-day life is very normal, but it's very common to ward against magic. And there's just this sort of general sense of unease that like dark supernatural creatures might fully triumph in a few generations. And they're maybe living in the shadow of this looming threat, which was a very interesting vibe for a story. It's not like they're peacefully coexisting alongside supernatural creatures, and it's not like the supernatural creatures are hiding from the human world, which I feel like is the case for most urban fantasy books. It's more that humans are aware that they are a small and powerless minority in the face of these potential supernatural creatures that might eventually decimate them completely. It actually reminded me a lot of The Coldest Girl in Cold Town by Holly Black, which is another vampire novel that I like a lot, although I haven't read it for a few years. And it kind of has the same premise of like this uneasy tension between supernatural creatures and humans, and like they both exist in the same world, but they haven't really accepted each other, which is kind of an interesting idea because I feel like in a lot of urban fantasy worlds, like you said, the magical creatures are either completely integrated or they're completely separate from the human world. And in this case, the humans would kind of really rather not have them be there, but they are there and they kind of have to deal with that anyway. Yeah, I think now that you mentioned it, it did remind me a fair bit of The Coldest Girl in Cold Town, especially the way that there's sort of this dichotomy where some people romanticize the vampires, but also they're genuinely terrifying and the way that they feed on people is like really gross and creepy. A lot of the world in Sunshine feels really familiar, like there are cars and bakeries and college and libraries, but it also feels subtly different and affected by like this huge war that decimated a lot of people and the knowledge that there are dark supernatural creatures out there, which I thought was very skillfully done world building. Sunshine has this very chatty kind of stream of consciousness narration and she'll just like start thinking about a random topic and like go on for it for like a couple pages and it will feel like very naturally like she's thinking of this world and then she'll think of a supernatural thing in it and then she'll think about a regular thing in it and then she'll just keep on going like that and it felt very well integrated and like it really was a full world that she lived in. Yeah, it felt very fleshed out and somewhat like our world but almost like, I don't know, 15 degrees to the right in a slightly more magical direction And then there is like other stuff that feels subtly different, like New Arcadia isn't a real city. And I feel like the swear words they use in this are slightly different. They say Carthaginian a lot, which in our world, that is an adjective about Carthage. But I guess in Sunshine's world, it's a really bad swear word because people say it a lot when they're frustrated. And it's just interesting details like that, or the fact that people will carry warding charms around in like their cars to keep monsters out, or the fact that people have a whole police department that's simply just devoted to dealing with supernatural creatures. Sunshine herself has magic passed down from her father's side, which is kind of transmutation magic. And it allows her to turn one thing into another, like a feather into a flower or a jackknife into a key, which is what helps her escape when she's kidnapped. And I thought that paired really well with her occupation as a baker, because they're both about things being turned into other things, but in this case, it's like through magic. I thought that was such a neat parallel because it's not just that Sunshine is a baker, and it's not like in the case of a wizard's guide to defensive baking where her magic is related to baking, but it's kind of like her magic parallels her baking and the fact that maybe she, as someone who has transmutation magic but has not used it in a really long time and has kind of suppressed it, is maybe drawn to baking because it is this similar, you turn things into other things kind of evolution. I just thought that paired paired really well together. And also it's kind of fun that for a book about vampires, the main character is very occupied with how to feed humans. She's very occupied with feeding humans. The number of times Sunshine's like, I can't stay out late at night hunting vampires because I have to get up at 4.30 to make cinnamon buns. is really funny. Also, she draws her power from sunlight, which kind of makes her a natural enemy to vampires because Sunshine isn't actually her real name. Her given name is Raven because everyone from her father's family apparently has very dramatic sorcery names. Like Her father's name is Onyx Blaze and I guess he named his daughter Raven. When she was younger, people called her Ray, and then that turned into Sunshine. And personally, we both have somewhat confusing nicknames that take a lot of steps to explain to people. So I related to that a lot, but also it's legitimately like she gets her power from sunlight, so it makes sense that her nickname is Sunshine. Yeah, and that's how she's able to help Khan escape, because by like, touching him she's kind of able to extend her power to him and he can walk in daylight which is not normally something that vampires can do so she's like a very powerful magic user but she just kind of wants to be left alone to experiment with baking and like be in her kitchen and hang out in the coffee house it's kind of an interesting refusal of the call character she's utterly uninterested in being dragged into this world but also doesn't really have much of a choice because it's a part of her i get the sense reading this that that's true for a lot of people because the way Sunshine describes it, it sounds like a lot of people in her world have some type of magical heritage that they kind of suppress or hide. And in her case, uh, one of the subplots is that she's a little bit worried that like these murderous instincts that she has towards vampires that kick in at the start of the book is because her mom's family may have had demonic heritage, and her dad's family might have been like had supernatural magic heritage, and like those don't mix well. And she's like worried that because she has two different types of magic in her that might make her evil I don't know I didn't find the particularly compelling aspect of the book I was just like this is a very random subplot I don't care about it but I did find the idea that there are plenty of people in this world who have magical powers but some of them are like that's just that's too hard to deal with I'm gonna ignore it and go to college and pretend I'm totally human was kind of interesting Yeah, another subplot in this book is Sunshine being recruited by like the Supernatural Police Force, because at one point she just straight up kills a vampire with a kitchen knife, which should be completely impossible because killing vampires is really hard. And so they kind of spend the whole rest of the book following her around being like, Sunshine, 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 please join the Supernatural Police Force. And she's like, I don't want to. No, thank you. Uh, But part of this is her learning that the supernatural police force actually has a lot of people with magical heritage in it and they kind of use their like inherited demonic or sorcerer powers to catch really bad magical creatures like certain types of demons or vampires which was kind of interesting because you see like some of these characters as customers in sunshine's coffee house for a little while but you don't know very much about them and then like they reveal that like actually they're part of like this group of part bloods with demonic heritage who are using their powers to try to hunt down like other bad supernatural creatures. And it's an interesting subplot about these people who like are magic, but they kind of try to deny it in order to hunt down other people who use their magic for bad reasons. It's also through her connections to the supernatural police who were called the SOF, but I don't remember what that stands for. Anyway, it's, it's through her connection to those people that Sunshine learns that humans are much, much, much closer to losing to the supernatural world than it seems and they need her to help track down demons and vampires because there is like this looming threat that in one or two more generations or in like 100 years, humans could be like gone for good and like the supernatural creatures would have completely taken over. I get the sense that really the only magic that exists in this world is kind of bad, scary magic or that's the only kind of magic people are are like preoccupied with because there's so much emphasis on vampires and demons and like the bad ways magic can can affect someone's life none of the characters ever stopped to contemplate that like having magic can be a cool thing but i thought the sense of this looming dread and the fact that humans might go extinct or i'll become enslaved to vampires or something in a couple generations did add this interesting feel to the book that i haven't really encountered anywhere else and this might just be because i view everything through the lens of living through a pandemic because i am you know living through a pandemic something about it reminded me of existing right now where like the general sense That things are not good but also the cognitive dissonance that like at this moment in time or maybe like this specific moment things might feel kind of fine and just that interesting cognitive dissonance of like sunshine is baking cinnamon rolls and saying hello to the regulars and planning the menu and also in 100 years humans might be completely extinct because evil supernatural creatures will have taken over just felt like oddly relatable right now No, yeah, I don't think you're wrong to say that's relatable, especially because a lot of the characters in this book, like, they acknowledge that there's bad magic, but it's just a part of their life, the, like, ward their house against vampires coming in or like put like a magic ward in their car so like a werewolf can't break into it and stuff and like all this bad magic is very normal to them like it's a normal part of their life to try to protect themselves against it and it's kind of like now how like wearing masks and social distancing feels completely normal even though it's really not a normal part of society. I do like urban fantasy books that take a very matter-of-fact approach towards magic like there was one part where Sunshine is wondering about conservation of mass in relation to werewolves because wolves and humans aren't the same size. And she's like, I don't think the scientifically makes much sense, but I'll just roll with it because it's magic. And I, I enjoy that kind of stuff where people are just very matter of fact about stuff that you shouldn't really be matter of fact about yeah sunshine has a very stream of consciousness narration in this where she'll just casually think about supernatural stuff i think it actually takes like a solid 10 pages before this book even reveals itself as urban fantasy because she's just thinking about locking up the bakery and going for a walk by the lake at night and then only then it's like and i shouldn't have done that because then i got captured by vampires and like vampires and then she starts talking about supernatural stuff and it's really well integrated because it just kind of feels like reading about the life of someone in this world where like dark magic exists but it's kind of an accepted part that you have to live with it it was kind of intense to read this book though because she often goes on these really long mental tangents that are usually useful and often foreshadow something or provide an important piece of information but they're just not the type of narration I'm used to reading to it's not a very streamlined book and even though I did get sucked in like I had to read this in very large chunks because it's quite dense like you can't open it up and read like three pages and put it down otherwise it'd be totally lost the next time you pick it up you really have to like sit down and read like a chapter or two at a time to really get immersed into the voice. And it it was a very different reading experience of other stuff that I've read. Like so oftentimes people were like, don't info doubt to your reader or like make sure that your book is full of action. But Sunshine is kind of the opposite because it's not even necessarily a book about plot. It's just a book about existing in a world where there is magic and that's kind of upsetting and unfortunate. Yeah, but I did like it though because I think the overall impression felt like it took place in this very well-lived world where magic is like very established and people know about it and it's just kind of a thing that's there and it doesn't feel like tacked on at all. It feels like it kind of infects all parts of people's lives, which I liked a lot. I think the world building did feel sometimes like it was info dumped, but then other times it felt a lot like it was a very natural extension of like what's going on in the story and Sunshine's thoughts. No, yeah, I do think it mostly worked for this book. And it wasn't like a negative experience because it can be interesting to kind of mix up the type of things you're reading. But it definitely was a very different reading experience from other urban fantasy books, which I feel like tend to be very plot focused and less like introspective and character focused. And speaking of character focus, can we talk about the vampire romance in this book or like the lack of vampire romance or like the sort of vampire romance that doesn't really turn into a vampire romance or like whatever you call it? Yes, I do think we need to talk about Khan considering he's literally like the other main character in this book. Okay, so... At first, when I started this book, I did not think it was going to go down the vampire romance route at all, because at the start of the book, Sunshine is in an established relationship, which is also not something I feel like you see much in fiction. But anyway, and she has like a boyfriend named Mel and they're in a healthy relationship and she likes him. And also the vampires, including Khan, are all very described as inhuman and scary and not sexy and cool romantic. Except it turns out I was very wrong about that because this like tension develops between Sunshine and Khan fairly into the book I would say and I've only read Robin McKinley's young adult books like Beauty so just kind of reading along like treating it like it's the young adult book except the main character is like a gainfully employed adult and then it was like spicy unresolved vampire sexual tension and I was like oh my god I forgot you could do that in this book okay changing gears about how I think about this relationship now I'm sorry I didn't warn you about that but it was a spoiler like I remember you told me like it's so cool this book has a vampire character but they're not dating that's very unique in an urban fantasy book and I was like sitting there knowing that that scene's going to happen and I can't tell you. Okay, but now that I think about it, I really should have seen it coming because Robin McKinley has written not one but two Beauty and the Beast retellings and there is literally a scene where Sunshine is entertaining Khan when they are both in prison together by telling him fairy tales including Beauty and the Beast. So now I'm like, okay, obviously I have a thing for like innocent girl and like weird magical creature love interest. Obviously I didn't pick up on this somehow but I was like, oh boy, I, I didn't see this relationship coming. <laughs> Yeah, I do sort of wish this book had elaborated on the tension between Sunshine and Khan a little bit more because there's like a part where they almost have sex and they're both actually like that was a terrible idea and they just never talk about it again and Sunshine spends the rest of the book being like yeah I'm not gonna think about that and I was like okay but why did you put it in there then like I want you to resolve this somehow yeah Um, I I did like I think their relationship is quite interesting because they're from two groups who are fundamentally opposed and like there's no reason why they should be like having any kind of romantic or platonic connection but they have like this weird mental bond and they both went through like this very traumatic experience of being kidnapped and held captive together so like it's interesting I found their relationship compelling I'm just not like quite sure what the like almost romance that was doing in there also the thing is I actually did like her boyfriend Mel he's not in the book that much but he is a line cook and he has magical tattoos and he used to be part of a motorcycle gang. And he just seems like a nice dude. And like his relationship with Sunshine is very comfortable and supporting. And I was like, I but you didn't break up with him. Why you about to have sex with the vampire? What's happening? Yes, it was a bit strange. It felt sort of like it was a commentary on like other books where people do have relationships with vampires, but then like she didn't have the relationship with the vampire and they never talked about it again. And they're both just like, we're going to pretend that never happened. I mean, maybe, because there are these moments where Sunshine talks about how a lot of people think vampires are cool and romantic when they're teenagers and then they grow out of it. And she very much decides not to have a relationship with Khan and is like, sorry, like, this would not work. I have a loving boyfriend. But it was just, like, weird. And I was like, what's happening? Not weird as in bad, but I was just like, it felt very unresolved. Weird as in surprising, yeah. Also, a lot of things in this book are just very unresolved. Like, I get the sense that maybe... The backstory Mel has been telling everyone about being a motorcycle gang member who then becomes a line cook and just dates Sunshine and is a regular dude is not true, and maybe his tattoos are magical and maybe he's a sorcerer, and that never gets elaborated on. And we keep getting all these hints that Khan is somehow different from other vampires and that's why he's not eating Sunshine and is like nice to a human and that's never elaborated on. And we got all this stuff about how Sunshine's side of the family has given her magic but she hasn't seen them in a really long time and she doesn't even know if they're alive or not and that's not elaborated on either. And Sunshine has a really tense relationship with her mother because like they never really talk about the family that they left behind and that's not really elaborated on either. And then there is, of course, the tension between Khan and Sunshine that it's also never elaborated on. And so much of this book was just left hanging. Yeah, it's a bit odd because it does resolve the main plot of Sunshine and Khan being hunted by this like evil vampire they escaped from. And it also resolves kind of the conflict of sunshine being recruited by like the supernatural police force. But then there's these other things that are kind of like mentioned in passing that never quite picked up. And it feels a bit like there should have been a sequel to resolve it, but apparently Robin McKinley has quite firmly said that she's not going to write a sequel. So I was left being like, but I want to know what happened to Sunshine's father, Wait, No, what do you mean we only have two pages of this book left? I know, like if any standalone book I have ever read is begging for a sequel, it is Sunshine by Robin McKinley. But I think she's kind of like done writing books. I think she's sort of retired. She hasn't released a book in a really long time. So I will not get my hopes up, but it's definitely a rather unresolved book. It was an interesting reading experience, but I think when I got to the end and I was like, wait, wait, we're done. I thought we were going to keep going and like wrap all that stuff up. That felt a little unsatisfying to me. One thing that I did find really satisfying though was the way that Sunshine's baking is woven into the book because it feels like a really strong aspect of her character and also the plot because she works in a coffee house. And like Mona, she thinks about food and baking a lot. Like even when she's being held captive by the evil vampire, Beau, she's just like, gross, this bread he's making me eat isn't very good quality. I bet I could do better, which kind of made me laugh because she's in this horrible situation and she's still critiquing the food she's being given as a prisoner. And it just feels like, like a wizard's guide to defensive baking, baking is a very important part of Sunshine's life and it's something that she thinks about a lot, which I liked. It feels like a very well-integrated part of her character. Agreed. I really like that a lot. I think it was well done throughout the whole book and for instance there's this bit at the end where Sunshine cracks under stress and she gets upset that khan can't eat her baking and it was just really sweet And i think it said a lot about her character and the way that she is someone who enjoys giving food to other people and this is like an important part of her identity and it's just upsetting that she values this relationship with khan who saved her whole life and she's like i don't know how to repay you but i can't do this thing that i'm really good at and normally that's how i forge relationships with people it was just really sweet and i liked it a lot it's also kind of clever to make her someone who makes human food in a story about vampires because people are generally very concerned about what vampires eat and sunshine's primary concern is just making really good desserts i enjoyed that yeah that was funny because in any vampire story there's always the question of um where are they getting their food from this could be very concerning or somewhat amusing but then Sunshine's whole thing is like i'm actually very concerned about what the humans are eating and i want to make sure they have good quality bread and cinnamon rolls and i'm like honestly that's valid you go Yeah, and the coffee house that Sunshine works at is a very large part of her life, and also the book, because most of the other characters in the book besides Khan are either employees of the coffee house or customers there. Like, Sunshine first meets the Supernatural Police Force people because they keep showing up and they're, like, addicted to her cinnamon buns, and they really, really want to eat her cinnamon rolls, which is why they're there when she ends up killing another vampire with a kitchen knife. And it just kind of, you get the sense that baking is a very important part of the main character's life, not just a throwaway hobby that the author came up with to round out the character. It also didn't romanticize baking, which I thought was kind of interesting. It very much talks about how Sunshine has to get up really early and how that's actually kind of dangerous in her world, because if you're out when there's no sun, you're more liable to be attacked by evil supernatural creatures, or how the fact that it can be really hot and sweaty and exhausting. So I feel like this book did a really good job of capturing the joy of baking, but also the toll it can really take on people. And I don't know, I'm like, I don't know if Robin McKinley's ever worked as a baker, but it felt very authentic to me in the way that it's an important aspect of Sunshine's character that has a lot of positives, but also, you know, some negatives. As someone who has worked in food service, although not as a baker, I can confirm that the job is like just as chaotic and exhausting as Sunshine portrays it. Although I have never been afraid that I'll be attacked by vampires while walking on my way to my shift. So at least there's that one more thought on this book. I thought it was really funny that all the vampires had incredibly vampiric names like Beauregard and Constantine. And I'm like, are there no vampires named like Ryan and Andrew? Is this something like when you become a vampire, do you have to legally change your name to something cool and European sounding? What's up with that? I don't know; it's unclear. I also thought it was funny that in vampire novels, there's usually the whole like "don't go outside at night" thing, but it's kind of an unavoidable part of Sunshine's job because she has to get up at four a.m. to go to the bakery. So there's just a lot of her scenes of her like bicycling across town, being being like, "I sure hope I'm not attacked by vampires right now because I can't be late for work." That was funny. Yeah, transportation is a large part of this book, actually. It really is because the vampires steal Sunshine's car at the beginning, and she's very mad at him about it for the rest of the book. How rude of them. Like if you're going to steal someone so you can poison them and feed them to another vampire, at least don't steal their car. So overall, I really liked the way the baking thing was an aspect of Sunshine's character. And I also liked that her work as a baker makes her very no-nonsense and competent and kind of makes me feel like she has a life outside of the supernatural stuff and the vampire hunting that she gets dragged into. Also, I would 100% read a sequel, or I don't know, like companion novels or anything else set in this universe. So Rob McKinley, if you're hearing this, please, you have an audience of at least two. I want more answers about Mel's past. Me too. I liked Mel. I wanted answers. I want to know what happened to Sunshine's father, other questions that are not answered. But I don't know if we'll ever get a sequel, unfortunately. So do we have general thoughts on these baking magic books? Because we did pair them together intentionally because they both have a same theme, which sort of came about because A while ago, I was complaining to Pi that so many fantasy books star people who are secretly royalty, and I was like, where are all the gainfully employed fantasy heroines? So I sat down and made a list of people who have jobs in fantasy books that aren't royalty, and these two both came up as people who bake, and I was like, these would be really fun to pair together, and it turns out that they were really fun to pair together. Yeah, in general, I just really want more fantasy books featuring main characters who have jobs besides witch, assassin, thief, or member of a royal family. And I feel like both of these books kind of filled that gap nicely because baking feels like a very tangible and important part of both of Sunshine's personalities and like the actual plot. And they think about baking a lot, like even when they're being held prisoner by an evil vampire or in a city under siege. And Uh, baking is also really relevant to the plot because like Mona can make bread monsters or Sunshine's customers turn out to be members of the supernatural police force who are secretly observing her and stuff like that. So like it feels like an important part of the book and not just like they bake for one scene and it's never mentioned again. I also enjoyed that I don't know I feel like baking and cooking is a very traditionally feminine hobby but this book really explored how much work goes into it and it's seen as something important and given value by the characters in story and I just thought I liked that because I don't know I feel like there are often fantasy books where the main characters are like I don't want to learn how to embroider I want to learn how to fight with a sword which is great but I'm like you could do both or like not even mention the embroidery thing like I'm sure you live in pseudo historical Europe except there are dragons but like what if we found interesting ways to integrate like Air quote traditionally like feminine things people do into a fantasy book, and as I'm saying that, I really want to read a book about someone who does magical embroidery now. So I hope someone's done that. Uh, Tamora Pierce did. Have you not read Tamora Pierce, Lulu? Yeah, not for a really long time. Anyway, I do agree with that definitely. I just thought it was really nice that it was like an important part of both of the books, and there actually is a part where Sunshine's like, yeah, my family there are a bunch of like wizards that I haven't seen in 10 years but I don't think that would approve of me being a baker for a living but I don't care I just want to bake stuff I don't want to be a wizard I kind of like that I like that because baking is such a demanding job it just results in both the main characters as being very no-nonsense and very practical and somewhat bossy characters who even when they're faced with these outlandish and sometimes terrifying magical scenarios they're always like I know what to do and sometimes it will involve applying my baking skills to this scenario I just like that a lot Yeah, like Sunshine's like, okay, I have to hunt a vampire. Well, one time like 50 tourists came into my store and were all demanding cinnamon buns and I survived that so I can survive this too and it was really fun to read about. It was great. Also, considering the amount of violence both these books had, I was shocked by how hungry I was when I finished reading both of them because the food descriptions were really good. I really want a blueberry muffin now. And I could really use a cinnamon roll, but preferably not one involving a vampire. With that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you would like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us on Twitter at Never Twins Cast, on Instagram at Never the Twins Shall Meet. Our website is neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, and you can shoot us an email at Never Twins Shall meet at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.